Hello and welcome to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. I'm Gabe Winant, your co-host with Alex Press, and today we are here with a special episode to celebrate finishing part one of the making of the English working class. Well done, those who are reading along. And rather than reading with a uh, assignment from the book this, this week, we are going to be having a special discussion on the famous polemical exchange between Thompson and Louis Althusser, the French philosopher. And we have with us to uh, talk about it, Assad Hader, who is the author of the book from Verso, uh, Mistaken Identity, and co-editor of Viewpoint Magazine. Thanks for having me. Thompson and, Al- and Althusser had this very infamous, very kind of hostile encounter in the 1970s. Um, and I think it would be interesting for our listeners who probably have some sense of it, obviously have been reading Thompson, mainly will not have read much Althusser, if I had to hazard a guess, um, to try to kind of set it in its historical context and to explain some of the main issues involved. Well, you know, um this is a complicated story because in some sense it was not actually an exchange. Um, Thompson wrote a book called The Poverty of Theory, which came out, I believe, in 78. And uh, it was framed as a takedown of Althusser. Um, Now, if you read it and you're familiar with the context, you're familiar with both the French intellectual and political context, and the English one, uh, it becomes clear that this book is not really about Althusser. It's about uh, other people within English Marxism who had been taking up the work of Althusser in various ways, uh, with whom Thompson had already had uh, about a decade of disagreement. Uh, You may have discussed this already uh, in the show. But um, Althusser did not respond. he was actually invited by Perry Anderson to respond, um, and there is an exchange of letters between them in 1979, which I have not read in their entirety. Uh, but uh, Althusser was invited to respond to Thompson. Uh, this was a period of great um, mental instability for Althusser in 1979, so I don't know exactly what's the story uh, behind it or what uh, state he was in when he was engaged in this exchange with Anderson. But he said uh, basically that he found the text very interesting um, and that he acknowledged that in reading Capital, one of the texts that Thompson had criticized, he had been um, uh, very brief and hasty in discussing the discipline of history, but he was not sufficiently familiar with British historiography to be able to respond in a substantive way. So... This is the non-exchange, in a sense, between Thompson and Althusser. Can we start by backing up a little bit and just talking about, from your understanding of this non-exchange exchange, what is it about Althusser's influence that so bothered Thompson, whether it was Althusser himself or the influence of his work on these English Marxists? If you have really read Althusser, you find that 
read in reading the poverty of theory, uh, it it has very little to do with the actual work of Althusser. So what's going on? What and, and at the same time, it's like an extremely vehement text. It's uh, an extremely impassioned uh, and angry kind of text. So what accounts for this? I'll identify two initial reasons. Um, one is a kind of accidental reason, which is simply the fact that um, Thompson had been engaged in this uh, very vicious debate with Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn over the interpretation of English history. And this was already an extremely hostile debate. And the fact that Anderson in particular uh, was somewhat interested in Althusser in this moment in the mid-60s, I think uh, led to Thompson viewing this as a, mal a, a malign influence, one which had to be criticized in order to criticize the mistaken interpretation of Anderson, uh, both of English history and of contemporary English politics for the period. Um, so that would be one uh, uh, reason which is embedded in those debates. And we've talked about those debates on the last episode, so that's good. But we really haven't gotten into either the poverty of philosophy and what it argues or any of Althusser's work. I would say a second reason would be, um, and this, this came out in the debate with Anderson and Nairn, is Thompson's very English frame of reference. Um, he was very invested in defending the idea of a kind of English socialist communist tradition, which was not always recognized as such by the figures involved in New Left Review who became more interested in Marxism that came out of Italy and France and, and Germany and so on. You, you know, I mean, uh, Anderson criticized him for a kind of nationalism. I think there is an extent to which it is true. If if I were uh, working in the Thompson style, I would have to compare him to some character in a Dickens novel who would have the same sentiments and reactions that he did. But I, I lack the adequate familiarity with Dickens. Uh, so those are the two uh, initial um, reasons I would identify for the vehemence of his attack. As you've suggested here, um, a good deal of the debate, or rather of the attack, comes down to uh, the role of history and historicism as Thompson interprets Althusser to have misinterpreted it, um, and to empiricism, which features centrally in the exchange with Anderson as well. It would be helpful, I think, if you could talk a bit about both what Thompson takes to be Althusser's position on historicism and empiricism uh, and how you would correct Thompson's misreading. And also to be clear, I think for so that most people can understand this, what is historicism and what is empiricism? We touched on this last week, but I think it's good to reiterate how these words are being used. So to sort of lay the background for what Althusser is doing, we can talk about it at a kind of theoretical and a political register. And I'm only distinguishing these kind of for the purposes of analysis because they're really united. I mean, but you're asking about these two categories called historicism and empiricism. Now, it's complicated to talk about both of these because they have all kinds of specific uses 
within philosophy, within historiography, and so on. But the way that they're mobilized in these debates is very specific. And Althusser's usage of them is very specific. And sometimes Thompson um, is reacting in a way that is based on a very general understanding of these categories rather than the specific questions Althusser was uh, grappling with that he used these terms within. Um, that's quite clear in the poverty of theory because, I mean, uh, you get a kind of series of decontextualized quotations which he sort of reacts to uh, and so on. So, historicism. Now, at a certain level in historiography, historicism uh, referred to a kind of historical relativism in which each period of history would be understood on its own terms and so on. But that's not at all the usage uh, that uh, Althusser intends. Um, when Althusser talks about historicism in reading capital especially, he is, I think, primarily drawing it from Gramsci, who is taking the term from the Italian philosopher Benedetto Croce. And it's a kind of a contentious interpretation of Gramsci, which people have argued against recently. And I think that to some extent, Althusser um, was uh, exaggerating the case. But the idea is that historicism is the theory of history, which sees it as a continuous development towards a particular goal. History is a kind of linear process in which there's a driving force which realizes an ultimate goal. And that was really something that was, uh, in Althusser's interpretation, drawn back to Hegel. Hegel interprets history as a process with a subject, which is spirit, and a goal, which is the self-knowledge of spirit. And so, for Althusser, Marx's intervention was um, at the point that Marxism had fully developed his thought was an anti-historicist one, in the sense that Marx questioned the idea that history can be understood as a linear process in which there is one essential driving force and a goal that all of history is progressing towards. He wanted to introduce the idea that history does not have a predetermined outcome, and it does not have one essential kind of driving cause. You can't boil everything in history down to one thing. And so we could say that for historicism, history is a process which has a goal, and it's linear development in realizing that goal. But if you take like a kind of slice out of any point in that process, anything you identify that happens within that slice of history can be seen as an expression of that one fundamental thing that is driving the whole historical process. So that's kind of what results from the method of historicism. Now, concretely within Marxism, you could find many different kinds of historicism. One would be the classical kind of mechanical deterministic theory of history, which says, for example, that the development of technology, the development of the productive forces, is what determines everything that happens in history, that anything that in a, in a particular historical stage can be understood as an expression of that level of development of the productive forces. That would be one kind of historicism. You could have another kind of historicism which would be about the development of class consciousness, let's say. So the development of the consciousness of the proletariat uh, 
proceeds according to a particular progression and at any period you can identify the way that every historical phenomenon is an expression of that. So that's historicism. Uh, do you want to take a break there or should I move right into empiricism? Well, it seems to me that the relation between the two would be that Thompson would, while not identifying with the version of historicism that you just said, Thompson would defend empirical historical inquiry as the necessary way of analytically linking the uh, sort of moment in the historical process to the determined set of activities, right? That actually with, with empirical inquiry, we can resolve some of the problems inherent to historicism while retaining that kind of longer historical or that, that historicist narrative. I would step back for a second and say that when Thompson reacts against Althusser's critique of historicism, I think he is understood in a very common sense way as just, um, as just indicating historical analysis as such. And he thinks that Althusser is questioning the value of historical analysis. And so he's not really responding to this um, kind of... Uh, idea of a teleological interpretation of history, which I think he actually would disagree with. But he, but, but Thompson also does defend uh, the younger Marx against Althusser's analysis of Marx's trajectory, right? Thompson defends a more Hegelian Marx. Uh, he doesn't defend a Hegelian Marx at all because he views the Grundrisse and Capital as the most Hegelian moments in Marx's development. And this is the really weird thing about reading The Poverty of Theory, which is that he accepts the idea that Althusser has that there is a break in Marx's development, but he sides with the young Marx against the later Marx and sees the later Marx as fully Hegelian and um, sort of mired in the ideology of political economy. This is a whole weird aspect of this text. I don't know how interesting it is to get into it in detail, but I would say... Once again, that I don't think that Thompson wants to defend an idea of history as teleology, of history as monocausal, but I think at, at a certain level he does slip into it. Why? Because um, he wants to defend um, the idea that there's a kind of ground zero of history, which is human experience. And that's the fundamental kind of... Um, th that's another reason why, to answer your question, Alex that he uh, is so um, scandalized by Althusser. That is the questioning of human experience. And um, I think while Thompson would not subscribe to a teleological understanding of history, and he's certainly critical of the classical kind of historicism of orthodox Marxism, which is based on the development of the productive forces, he's very critical of that. Uh, he would want to defend one in which human experience is kind of uh, at the core of history. Is it the case that then, to some degree, Thompson's misunderstanding here is he has an issue with how this has been taken up by the likes of Anderson to, say, negate the experience of the English working class um, to a degree that he finds to be, you know, as we talked about last week, um, actually like a little bit too mechanical in models um, and he's blaming this on Althusser because I think you're right about he doesn't seem to have from everything I've read from Thompson this teleological understanding of history and actually has something much more complex than that going on but he does 
he does really insist that uh, a particular set of social experiences, while they have to be uh, internalized and kind of cognized upon and then formed into human action, right? So there's a mediation through, through that meaning of experience. Particular social experiences do produce social action for him in fairly uniform ways, right? And this is one of the main criticisms of him, uh, eventually from post-structuralists as well, right? That experience uh, is actually, he's added another step in economic determinism, but it's actually still quite determined. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. I mean, um, yeah, you could say that the category of experience, which Thompson uses as an explanation, Thompson uses ex experience as an explanation for how class is made. I mean, this is obvious in the first pages of the Making of the English Working Class. But the category of experience is actually something that you have to explain, not something you can just use as an explanation. It's a quite a complicated thing. I mean, what do we mean by experience? I don't know to what extent you discussed the category itself already. Uh, you've probably gone into this. But I mean, what do we mean by experience? We could say, for example, uh, experience is um, the knowledge that I accumulate after engaging in a series of practices over time. So I could say, for example, that both of you are experienced podcasters. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I could say that uh, experience, on the other hand, is something that happens to me, that um, I experience something. For example, I am currently experiencing the great talents of these two experienced podcasters. So uh, the... The category of experience, on the one hand, seems to represent this knowledge that is accumulated. On the other hand, which is a kind of active thing. On the other hand, this kind of passive thing that I am experiencing something happening to me. And so, um, can this category of experience be mobilized to explain how something like a class comes about? Is it at the level of experience that you have a class? And why is it that people come to have a common experience? To have a common experience, which is constitutive of class, you would have to have some kind of common set of determinations that make a particular kind of experience, which would be, let's say, the relations of production and so on, uh, which certainly in the um, empirical uh, work that Thompson does, you get a clear picture of. So the position that is advanced by Althusser and uh, you know, let's be more expansive and say that Althusser himself is not necessarily the key thing because he uh, was uh, kind of at the center of a whole range of theorists in France, including Poulancas and so on, who intervened directly in these discussions. Um, but we could say that from their vantage point, class was not something you could explain by experience, but rather that the experience that people had of being in a class is an effect. It's an effect of particular structures. And so people, individuals, insofar as in social theory we're talking about people as representatives of a class, we mean that they are, to use the language of Marx, the bearers or supports of particular structures that are part of the mode of production. And I think Thompson viewed this as uh, an 
erasure of human experience. And this mattered for him because he had a conception of socialist politics, which was based on the idea of people having mastery over their own lives. I mean, this is fundamental to Thompson's conception of socialism. It's not just the idea of what, say, a centrally planned economy or something like that. It was the idea of mastery over your own life. And so for him, the idea that people were just bearers or supports of a structure went totally against that politics. However, I would say that actually, um, when you look at the political positions that um, these various figures espouse, Thompson's politics were much closer to Althusser's than they were to, say, Anderson or uh, other figures like that. What are the political positions that they espoused? Like, what are the actual concrete differences as these manifest in their political trajectories? Great question. So uh, I will begin with Althusser. Um, Althusser, you know, he joins the French Communist Party in 1948. He's coming out of the experience of the mass uprisings of the Popular Front in France and the anti-fascist resistance. And so this has given a kind of credit to the Communist Party um, that leads him to join and that leads him to think that this organization is the main point of contact that I as an intellectual can have with the mass working class struggles. And this was an idea that he had throughout his political career and why he remained in the Communist Party despite almost immediately having very uh, vigorous disagreements with the leadership. And uh, so the key moment uh, for both of both Althusser and Thompson is 1956, in which Khrushchev delivers uh, the secret speech condemning Stalin's cult of personality, um, uh, enumerating the various atrocities committed under Stalin's regime, and um, causing a crisis in the international communist movement. Many people leave the party at this point. Thompson believes this is a major moment, uh, a decisive moment for the conscience of the various uh, communists of Western Europe and the rest of the world, which they have to decide whether they're going to take a stand against Stalinism or not. For Althusser, this was a moment in which Stalin was being condemned, but the underlying politics of Stalinism were continuing under Khrushchev and further. And Althusser was sympathetic to the position that came to be laid out by China uh, in the subsequent years, which was that the Soviet Union was moving towards a restoration of capitalism and that the Western communist parties um, were essentially engaged in incorporating themselves into the capitalist state. And so for Althusser, the problem was how did you how can you come up with a politics at this point which can present a real alternative to what's happening? And the French Communist Party, while the French Communist Party in this period was one of the most dogmatically Stalinist parties in Western Europe. Um, but the theory that it came to adopt was that of Marxist humanism. So, for the French Communist Party moving throughout the 60s, humanism, the idea that 
Marxism was based in humanism and that this was grounded in the early writings of Marx, the 1844 manuscripts and so on. This was their primary ideology and it served as a way to argue that they were transcending the moment of Stalin, that they were entering into a new period in which they could go beyond the kind of um, violent necessities of the class struggle and the dictatorship of the proletariat, and they were entering into a new period with a new man, a new kind of human being. Um, and it was also a way to kind of make an argument for an ethical socialism, which would allow them to form alliances with more um, social democratic organizations, with Catholics, and so on. And so in this context, Althusser wanted to find a way to criticize this kind of dominant politics, which was claiming to transcend Stalinism, but was still engaged in a very bureaucratic and ultimately reformist kind of politics. That was Althusser's underlying political initiative. Now, for Thompson, the moment of 1956, as I said, it was a crisis of conscience for him, for uh, members of communist parties. And he believed, as various other uh, figures in Western Europe did, that the only way to go beyond Stalinism was precisely through this humanism which appealed to human experience. So strangely enough, in their particular national context, things got quite scrambled. For Thompson, humanism was the alternative to the politics that was coming out of 1956. For Althusser, humanism was totally a continuation of the politics uh, that he wanted to criticize that were coming out of that moment. Um, and so there was often a bit of an error of translation there. This is something I wanted to talk about, what humanism and anti-humanism were. So we've talked about what humanism were for both Thompson and then for the French Communist Party, the PCF, and, and Althusser. So what does anti-humanism translate into? Because I think for people who hear that term, there might be a sense of misunderstanding what that actually means in Althusser's hands. It sounds awful, doesn't it? It sounds really bad, humans. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's just terrible. But so uh, we can understand it the most clearly when we look at what this means in terms of the interpretation of Marx. Now, as I said, the PCF made a kind of reference back to the early writings of Marx, uh, which are humanist in their orientation, as the basis for this ethical conception of socialism, which was, as I said, it was um, their means of forming alliances with more reformist uh, organizations, and it was a way of arguing for a way of transcending Stalinism within the confines of the same bureaucratic kind of politics. Why is it, why is it that an ethical socialism is a way to make ties with reformist politics? What does that mean in practice at the time? You can make various ethical statements. Let's say, I, I found it, I was reading Thompson uh, making a reference at some point to the Brotherhood of Man, and I remembered immediately um, the uh, musical, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, which has a song called The Brotherhood of Man, in which he realizes that the 
people, the, the, the other businessmen that he's working with, that he can be in a kind of brotherhood with them and they're all together. Uh, so th this idea of kind of like an ethical togetherness with everybody, it can be totally incorporated into the existing relations of production, into the existing social relations. Uh, the, the, when you make an abstract statement of ethics from the perspective of someone like Althusser, that has to be totally distinguished from making a political analysis in which you identify the character of the social structure and you talk about changing the power relations that are constitutive of it. If you say within capitalist society, well, we should all treat each other like brothers and so on, um, that can be incorporated into the existing social structure rather than posing a challenge to it. This is the sense in which... Um, Althusser and others found the ethical conception of socialism inadequate. Let me step back a minute and sort of identify at the theoretical level what Althusser's intervention was. Althusser was posing a very deep question which I think we are also posing to ourselves now, which is what is Marxism, in fact? What does it mean to say that you are a Marxist? Uh, what distinguishes this from other forms of socialist politics, or from other modes of interpreting history and society. And for Althusser, this is a problem that had to be posed from the ground up. And because the communist movement made a reference to the writings of Marx, this was a question of interpretation. It was a question of how do you look at Marx's writings and identify a breakthrough, a point at which he is able to propose a different way of looking at the world from what preceded him. Althusser first proposes in an article called On the Young Marx, let's look at this context. And we know, first of all, that this is a context in which all of these young radicals in Germany are totally inspired by Hegel. Now, I think there's a lot of now you can find a lot of people saying, um, and Althusser is taken as an anti-Hegelian, first of all. So this is, you know, already one way that Hegel is dismissed. And in another sense, I think a lot of people now will say, Hegel, like, you look at it, and it's all a bunch of nonsense. So I don't see why this is relevant to the actual uh, aims of working class politics. Okay, what was actually the relevance of Hegel in this period? It was that you just had the Enlightenment. You just had the idea that you can think of history and society on the basis of reason rather than, the base, than on the basis of religion and dogmas and superstition, and that you could organize society on a rational basis. The Enlightenment introduced that idea, and yet society is totally irrational. You have the rule of superstition, the rule of tyranny all over the place. And so Hegel is interesting because he proposes the idea of history as a process in which these irrational things, these irrational moments, are part of the development of reason, in which it sort of it, it alienates itself and mutilates itself in these expressions, and then is able to overcome them and rise to a higher level. And so history is a process of contradiction, in which all of these irrational phenomena are part of the process by which rationality is developed. And so for these young radicals uh, in Europe, this was a way to understand 
why it was that society appeared to be so irrational and how you could overcome it. But the problem was that Hegel remained ultimately religious. This was the, the character of idealism, that he saw spirit as the subject of history, and that he was ultimately somewhat conservative. He believed that a constitutional monarchy would be the most rational form of state. And they wanted to go beyond this. They believed in democracy. They were radical Democrats, Marx and his uh, comrades. And so they wanted to find an alternative that incorporated the insights of Hegel's thought of history as a process, but was not idealist and religious, that was materialist, and that was radical and critical of the existing society and its forms of state. Now, the great breakthrough in this was Ludwig Feuerbach, who was Marx's primary inspiration as a young man, one of Marx's primary inspirations. Now, what Feuerbach did was he took Hegel's conception of history as a process, and he switched out the subject of spirit, the idealist, religious conception of spirit, and he put in human nature. And this, for him, was materialism that if you swap out the subject of history and you replace the idealist one with this supposedly materialist one, which is human nature, you will have a materialist conception of the dialectic. And so in Feuerbach's conception, human nature alienated itself in the form of religion, in Christianity. Christianity was an alienated expression of human nature in which the aspects of human nature were separated from people and projected onto the image of God. But the thing is, for Feuerbach, it was only through this alienation, it was only because of Christianity that we began to know what human nature really was. That was the historical process. It was through his Christianity that we understood what human nature is. And what we had to do is overcome that and reclaim human nature as a material thing rather than this religious ideal. And that, that would be the, um, the kind of realization of the goal of history. Now Marx was very inspired by this as a young man, and he took up this framework. And he basically repla replaced Christianity with private property and he specified that human nature was based in labor. So labor is an expression of human nature because I create an object um, that's an expression of my nature, um, but because it's owned by someone else's private property, it is alienated, and only by reclaiming it can I overcome that alienation and realize the essence of human nature. Now, Althusser said, this was his uh, major initial intervention. Look, when Marx says this in the 1844 Manuscripts on Alienation, all he's doing is repeating Feuerbach's critique of religion. And he's just transposing these other categories on it, and he hasn't yet invented a new way of understanding capitalist society. And ultimately, Feuerbach's critique of Hegel while it replaced spirit with human nature, had the same teleological structure as Hegel. It was just human nature realizing itself instead of the spirit realizing itself. 
And so if we want to identify a breakthrough in Marx's thought, we have to see where he produces a new conception of history, one which is not the teleolo teleology of Hegel, even if we've put human nature in there where Hegel had spirit. And um, to make a long story short, for I'll say what this means, is that Marx had to invent the concept of the mode of production in order to grasp the character of capitalist society, which was not just contained in these early writings. These early writings did not yet have that concept. That was a lot. That was very helpful, I think. Uh, could you, I think it would be good if you told us a little bit more about how the concept of the mode of production works in Alcacer and also as it's developed further by those around him um, and can be useful as a device for historical inquiry, regardless of what Thompson says about it. Yeah. The breakthrough of the mode of production is that, according to Althusser, Marx is overcoming this idea which is in Hegel, which Hegel drew from English political economy, from British political economy. Um, and that was the idea of civil society. Civil society was the sphere of needs in which people exchanged things in order to meet their needs. And for Hegel, uh, civil society was um, part of the ruse of reason. Civil society was where the egoism of people allowed them to, re to produce greater wealth and greater prosperity and bring society to a higher level. And the young Marx is still working with this idea of civil society. He challenges Hegel's understanding. For Hegel, civil society was the sphere in which the rationality of the state, of the community, could be realized despite the egoism of civil society because it resulted in greater wealth and a greater level of culture, and so the state could come to a higher level. The community could come to a higher level despite the egoism. Now, Marx argued that actually it was the egoism of civil society that was fundamental and that it led to this alienated form of the state in which people's powers were separated from them in the form of the state. That's the young Marx's conception. But the idea of the mode of production is something very different because the mode of production is not based in just the idea of people exchanging things. Um, the idea that came out of classical political economy. It's more specifically the unity of these two factors, which is the forces of production and the relations of production. That is, a particular level of technological development, particular forms of production, technology, resources, and particular property relations and ways of producing and divisions of labor. And the way that those two come together to form one common mode of production. Um, and Althusser proposed that this was a very new concept. It couldn't be reduced to just the classical political economy idea that people will always trade, they will always have a tendency to trade, and that this will just have particular expressions throughout history. This Marxist idea of the mode of production was one which could identify the specificity of different historical periods according to 
level of technological development and the forms of property and division of labor that were attached to them. And Althusser introduced another distinction which was implied in Marx's thought, which was that between the mode of production and what he called what Marx called the social formation. Meaning that in any society you cannot reduce every phenomenon of the society to just that particular mode of production, whatever mode of production is held to predominate in that period. Because first of all, you will find that there are multiple modes of production which coexist. That is, that, let's say, feudalism, and, and this is kind of, I mean, this is a way of framing the whole discussion of Anderson, Nairn, and Thompson, and so on. Feudalism isn't just entirely overcome and put in the dustbin. Forms of feudalism persist alongside capitalism. And when you're looking at, for example, um, the actually existing socialist societies, you'll see that in these transitional periods, when there is an attempt to create forms which go beyond capitalism, forms of the capitalist mode of production still persist in many different ways. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is that in the social formation, you have different levels. So you have the political level, you have the legal level, the ideological and cultural levels. And they may not all be reducible to that particular mode of production that you have held as predominant. And once again, this is the uh, way of reframing the Anderson-Nairn debate, which is to say that um, the fact that feudal structures persisted in English capitalism does not mean that the whole society was still held back by, let's say, the worldview of the aristocracy. It means there's an uneven development in different levels of the social formation. And that, that would be uh, a reason to criticize historicism, because historicism would say that everything would have to be an expression of that unitary historical period. But this other argument would be that there's an uneven development. There are aspects of the previous mode of production. There are aspects of the previous forms of the superstructure. There are new levels, and they are all incorporated into one social formation. So then where does the working class form for Althusser versus Thompson? Where do they fit in, and how are they made or produced, or whatever term Althusser wants to use? Yeah, so classes in the um, understanding of Althusser are bearers and supports of relations of production. That is, that in the capitalist mode of production, you have a capitalist who represents the capital relation, the accumulation of capital, and you have the working class who are the bearers of labor power. The working class represents, in this case, the labor power commodity. But for Althusser, at the same time, you have to understand that classes are the result of class struggle. And this is a point that Thompson also makes. Thompson argues classes are the result of class struggle and classes are relational. That is, you can only understand the class in terms of its relation to the other class. 
this makes the idea of a class making itself somewhat complicated. How do you make yourself if you only exist in relation to this other term? And um, for Thompson, it's a very political point because when you understand that the working class makes itself, you have the basis for arguing that, um, as I mentioned before, socialist politics are based on the self-activity of the working class. Now, for Althusser, this is there is a complicated theoretical problem, which is that he is arguing that the working class is the effect of the structure, but the structure is an antagonistic one. The relations of production are antagonistic because they are based on exploitation. And um, the sense in which you can speak of the working class politically, in which you can speak of the working class as engaged in political activity in the way that Thompson wants it to happen, for Althusser you could only talk about that at the level of organization. It's not at the level of experience or consciousness, okay? Because experience and consciousness are both seen as effects of material practices that are underlying it. So if you don't have forms of working class organization that are antagonistic to the employer, you don't have an antagonistic class consciousness. Now in the way that Thompson talks about it, you could have individual members of a class forming an idea of a collective interest against the employer and so on. But I mean, it's not totally clear to me that the way he empirically describes the making of the English working class actually cashes that out because you find all, all these forms of, you know, what he calls sub-political practices. You have all you, these weird religious movements and so on, which are not, um, they're not a clear class consciousness, but at the same time, they're part of this process of the making of the working class and the antagonism of the working class and the proposal by the working class of other realities. Um, and so I think this disconnect, this disconnect between consciousness and the objective categories of class that the historian wants to retain, this is a huge problem in studying history. You study a revolution. You know, most of the participants in a revolution, they're, they're not Marxists, you know. I mean, they have all kinds of ideas about why they're participating in this, pro in this political process. Sometimes they're motivated by nationalism. Sometimes they're motivated by religion. Sometimes they just want to get drunk, you know. And so um, how is it that these various different consciousnesses can be understood as part of a political antagonism to the system. That comes from the organizational basis. That, that, that would be the uh, framework of Althusser. What's funny about so much of the making of the English working class is in various ways it echoes, or it seems to actually be much more compatible with Althusser than Thompson would want to acknowledge. Um, I think it was two weeks ago. No, it was last week that we 
talked about um, the naval mutiny in 1798 in England, for example, which Thompson identifies as one of the kind of high points of proto-revolutionary activity in England uh, in, you know, in the kind of moment of English Jacobinism. And he's very quick to say, you know, the participants in the mutiny uh, don't necessarily themselves, they have, you can identify empirically points of contact with Jacobin organization, but there's no evidence that they are themselves actually um, articulating Jacobinism. Rather, they're articulating that their food is rotten and this kind of thing. Um, and that seems quite in keeping with the kind of analysis uh, that you're, you would attribute to Althusser and that Thompson seems quite hostile to when posed theoretically. Yeah, Althusser has this idea of what he calls the spontaneous philosophy of the scientists. You know, he says, scientists are engaged in this kind of materialist practice, coming up with knowledge. Uh, but their own understanding of that process may be totally ideological and idealist. And uh, I think sometimes I want to say that about Thompson, that in his actual investigations, he has a materialist method, but when he explains it conceptually, he lapses into idealism. I think you clearly get this with the poverty of theory when he's like giving a concentrated expression. He's just kind of vomiting onto the page how he thinks about this theoretically, and it, it's weak. Yeah, I, to prepare for this, um, I was rereading Anderson's adjudication of the debate, and there's this quite interesting uh, passage uh, if folks have a book at home who are listening, and this is Arguments Within English Marxism, this is the book that Perry Anderson wrote to kind of try to resolve and move on from this conflict, which it, it seemed stretched on for quite a long time in their lives. Um, and uh, in particular, there's this passage on 69 to 70 of the book where he is quoting from how Thompson talks about the idea of social, the social formation and the social formation is composed for Althusser of the levels of the economic, the political, and the ideological, right? Um, and Thompson says, well, you know, I, I've been doing all this scholarship on law and the role of law in 18th century England. And uh, I'll read you the quotation here from Thompson. I found that law did not keep politely to a level, but was at every bloody level. It was imbricated within the mode of production and productive relations themselves as property rights, definitions of agrarian practice, and it was simultaneously present in the philosophy of Locke. It intruded brusquely within alien categories, reappearing bewigged and gowned in the guise of ideology. It danced the cotillion with religion, moralizing over the theater of Tyburn. It was an arm of politics, and politics was one of its arms. It was an academic discipline, subjected to the rigor of its own autonomous logic, it contributed to the definition of the self-identity, both of rulers and ruled. Above all, it afforded an arena for class struggle, within which alternative notions of law were fought out. So then Anderson, as he does at every point in this book, says, yeah, this is great. Everyone should read this book by Thompson. It's fabulous. But listen, um, do its findings actually annul the notion of different instances or levels within a social formation? If we look at Thompson's list, it will be seen that it breaks down quite naturally into three regions traversed by a force common to them all. So he then lists the different areas where Thompson has said he finds law. And he, he says, five of them are in ideology, one is in politics, and one and a half are sort of in the economy. Uh, so what that means is law is an ideological 
uh, originates at the ideological level, uh, operates through politics to kind of shape the economic, and uh, class struggle occurs at all of these levels, therefore. Uh, and it seemed like this perfect resolution of this debate in the, in the line that you're saying, Assad, that uh, there's a way in which they're much more in line with one another than they seem to realize. Thompson here has kind of produced an empirical verification in some way of an Althusserian principle. Yeah, um, th that's probably true. I, I mean, when, when you introduce Anderson into this constellation, it becomes more complicated um, because, you know, you, you, you have to distinguish the different theoretical positions and the different political positions. And Thompson is like totally confused about the political positions because as I said, Thompson's kind of libertarian socialism and Althusser's sort of flirtation with Maoism, but a kind of um, complicated one. I think those are closer politically. And, and this is a bizarre moment in the poverty of theory uh, in this kind of postscript at the end, in which he says, okay, I've just argued that Althusser is Stalinism in theory, but now I realize that he's written these articles uh, attacking the leadership of the French Communist Party, which are um, a vicious assault on uh, Stalinism and the bureaucratic model of party organization and a defense of the autonomous organization of the working class. And uh, wow, that doesn't make sense. And so here's how I think actually it's still Stalinist. Um, it's a bizarre sort of disheartening moment in the text. Um, and we could get into some of the complexity, you know, I mean, he refers to various other tendencies in French politics, uh, socialism or barbarism and other groups like that, which Althusser also commented on later on. Um, but um, at any rate, uh, there are these weird political uh, kind of alignments and non-alignments and then theoretically, I mean, I would say Anderson, Anderson's interest in Althusser initially was in Althusser as a structuralist. Now, this is a common aspect of the understanding of Althusser in English. Part of the reception of Althusser in the Anglophone world was based on the fact that there was the French intellectual trend of structuralism that was rising at the same time. And Althusser, we could say in the way that Marx said he flirted with the Hegelian dialectic, Althusser flirted with structuralism in the sense that he was looking for um, different ways of theorizing that could understand a totality which was, you know, the initial effort of Hegel to understand a totality and to understand the problem of causality. When I looked at the name of your podcast, which is Casualties of History, I read it first as Causalities of History, which is the question that is posed by Marxism in a fundamental way. This is the question of base and superstructure, which everybody learns in their Marxism 101, which Thompson continually refers to, which he sees as a great kind of dogmatic limit on Marxist thought, is the 
uh, a model of Bayesian superstructure. Raymond Williams has all these reflections on it and so on. Now, Althusser's um, analysis of this is actually quite interesting, and you'll find it in the, his most famous essay, which is the one on ideology. He contrasts the model of Bayesian superstructure to what he calls the model of the Hegelian expressive totality, meaning what? The Hegelian model, we, would, we could say, is like a circle. And the circle has a center. And the center determines all of the points which lie around on the circle. So you have an essential contradiction. You have an essential cause. And everything else can be understood as its phenomenon. Althusser says the idea of base and superstructure was a development beyond this Hegelian model. And this Hegelian model could be, a, once again, it could be rendered materialist by putting technology at the center instead of spirit or whatever. And that's what the, uh, m much of the thought of the Second International and Orthodox Marxism did. But he said the idea of the basin superstructure, it replaced the circle model with a model of levels in which you had these various other levels which you alluded to, Gabe, of, of you know, the legal and the political and the ideological and so on. And when you have levels, you also have the reciprocal action of different levels on the previous levels or on the base. And so it's a model of much greater complexity than the one which says that we trace everything back to one cause. And so this problem of causality in Marxism is a fundamental one which Althusser was addressing. So he flirted with structuralism in a sense to try to look for other models of understanding the totality of understanding causality. But ultimately he thought that structuralism was an ideology which was still beholden to the old Hegelian model in the sense that it saw everything as a function of the structure. Uh, and that was not the method that he wanted to advance. And this is absolutely clear when you look at the essay from 1962 called Contradiction and Overdetermination. It's an early essay, uh, which is in for Marx, Later on, like 66 and on, you will see him um, in some unpublished texts directly attacking structuralism, saying structuralism is an ideology, criticizing it very vehemently. Um, he's not, and he does this in some published texts as well. He's not totally clear before 1965. But in 1962, this essay, Contradiction and Overdetermination, is one which tries to understand how historical events happen in a way that isn't the realization of a linear model of historical progress or of a kind of overwhelming structure which determines everything that happens. He says, how did the Russian Revolution happen? Because everything in Marxism predicted that it was at the highest level of capitalist development, probably Germany in this case, that you would have a revolution happening. You would have capitalism developing, you would have the working class increasing in number, increasing its political power in parliament, etc., etc. And he said, actually what happened, and this was the idea of the Social Democratic Party, but 
that's not what happened because actually there you had the most highly developed state machine, uh, the greatest control of the population, and it was actually in the weakest link of the world imperialist chain, which was Russia, that a revolution happened. And that revolution happened not because it was preordained by a historical process, but because a whole wide range of different contradictions accumulated and came together in a process that he called overdetermination. Overdetermination, the term is drawn from Freud, interestingly. And, you know, Freud uses it to explain how things happen in dreams. So he says, okay, and he introduced he introduces it earlier, but the most famous presentation is in the, in the interpretation of dreams, in which he's analyzing his own dream. And he says, okay, I've got all these things on my mind that I like, I, I'm worried about my patients. You know, I've gone to a party. Um, I'm worried about the adverse health effects of my cocaine habit and so on. And all of these different causes result in a particular set of events in my dreams, which is called Irma's injection. You can look it up. Uh, and so there isn't one cause. It's like something that happens to you during the day and a memory from your childhood are both causes of something that you see in your dream. So you can't reduce it to one cause. And so Althusser sort of imports this idea of overdetermination and says this is a way to understand causality in history, that you can't always redirect back toward the economy or something like that because you have to account for the way that all of these different causes are operative in an event. You know, I mean, he was criticized very vigorously by the Communist Party for this. They, called, they said he was guilty of pluralism and hyper-empiricism which is very different from structuralism. But now, Anderson and many other English readers of Althusser, they wanted to fold him into a kind of structuralism. They were reading structuralism, they were reading Althusser, they wanted to put it all together. And they wanted to use Althusser to come up with a theory of like, okay, you have all the different levels, you have overdetermination, you have all the different causes, we can like, you know, we can write out a map and we can come up with the system by which this happens. And Anderson, to a certain extent, wanted to do that. And Anderson has always, without um, ever lapsing, always wanted to assume an Archimedean vantage point by which he could understand the whole historical totality. And he criticizes everybody else for failing to have this vantage point, which only he has, but which he never has to actually explain to you. Okay, but so for a moment, Althusser was useful to him to elaborate this theory of the totality, but then he became disillusioned. And, um, you know, so arguments within English Marxism is a very interesting response to the poverty of theory. I would say don't bother reading the poverty of theory if you want to know what's going on. Read arguments within English Marxism because Thompson just like has no organization in his thoughts in that text and Anderson kind of systematizes them and then presents a lot of corrections of fact but he also presents his own perspective which is that of Marxism as an ultimately intellectual method which grasps the historical totality, and it's very distant 
from both Thompson's understanding of Marxism as a tradition, which is a political one, which is about the self-activity of the working class, and Althusser's conception of Marxism as taking up the class struggle at the level of theory. Those are two very distant conceptions from Anderson's. And I think they're closer together, as I've said before, than they are to Anderson. It's wor it would be worth thinking through aloud a little bit here in that light, how we might defend the Thomsonian project, not from, um, not on the terms that Thompson himself has laid out in the poverty of theory, but rather how we could understand the kind of historical inquiry that he's engaged in as productive within a conceptual apparatus that he doesn't himself provide. I agree with you in the sense that I think that um, Thompson has insights and like I said, it's a question of the spontaneous philosophy of the scientists in that he has a method which is not reducible to what he actually says about his method and what he actually says about his concepts. And I think that uh, I'm very much sympathetic to his politics. I mean, Anderson brings out some contradictions in his politics. He's a very libertarian conception of socialism. At the same time, he seems to lack a critical perspective about parliamentary politics and so on. Anderson kind of brings that out. At the same time, Anderson, once again, he has this vantage point of um, Trotskyism, which he um, has a really remarkable overestimation of, as though Trotskyism was the most important uh, and consequential historical force. Um, I, you know, it's like you don't know what history he's referring to there. Um, but I, I think, you know, Thompson has a, a politics of class struggle, of the constitutive character of class struggle, and of the constitutive character of working class autonomy for socialism. And this, for him, is what animates any Marxist tradition that's worthy of the name. And so I think that's interesting to think about, and it's interesting to think about whether that's best served by the category of experience, the category of consciousness. And the response by Althusser would be, once again, to emphasize the primacy of class struggle. That leads him to a focus on the problems of organization, the problems of the material structure of the state. This is the direction that Althusser goes. So rather than going in the direction of experience and consciousness, he says, what are the forms taken by the state that have to be dismantled? What are the practices of organization that can present an alternative to the bourgeois forms of politics? And it goes, you know, it goes to Marxist theory itself, because he, for him, it's not a matter of drawing Marxism back to human experience. It's a matter of saying, look, 
the the uniqueness of Marxism as a theory is that it's a theory of history which has to situate itself in the historical process is understanding because Marxism presents a theory of ideology it presents a theory of how knowledge is formed within historical processes and so Marxism itself is part of this historical process is trying to understand which is constantly changing and Marxism is trying to alter this historical process because it's part of a political project and so the status of Marxism as a knowledge is very unique. It's a very complex problem. And uh, that's a different direction to go from the direction of human experience, which honestly, human experience is a kind of trans-historical understanding. It's like any point in history, we have experiences. Um, and that's very different from embedding knowledge in historical processes, I'll say. I would, though, wonder about the move that Thompson makes to, beginning in, in this book, but especially later in his career, I guess you can see it clearly here too, actually, um, to try to disambiguate, and this, I think, is one of his central interventions, as he understands it in the writing of The Making of the English Working Class, to try to disambiguate um, social class and class struggle from... Um, at a general level, from the for their form of appearance in Victorian England, right, or in Victorian Europe and industrial Europe in general, um, and you know that is, I think, the in his mind the conceptual basis of all of the work that goes into showing how various ideological phenomena actually are. Um, he would not say structurally, but structurally related, right, to a process of uh, changing relations of production. And that's, that is what, why Methodism, for example, bears interest. Or why, uh, I mean, again, to kind of fully Althusserianize him, why we would be interested in the politics of a transitory artisan working class as opposed to a fully developed, you know, industrial one. Uh, and, and that seems to me um, to carry in it something that can, there's something that can be extracted from that, right, and, and, and more useful generally. I think you're pointing to this question, which is of the very diverse and varied ways that consciousness can be an effect of different practices. And many different consciousnesses can be an effect of different organizational and political practices. And... Um, I think, you know, I will continue to argue that I think that referring consciousness back to forms of organization and different practices of politics is a more powerful explanation than referring them back to human experience. And so I very much think that um, there can be this way of rereading Thompson, reading Thompson between the lines which doesn't have to, to adhere to his uh, stated methods. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, maybe that's what you'll... I'm trying to get our listeners to want to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly the adventure that you can enter into in reading the book, 
which is to read between the lines and to, you know, uh, this is what, you know, Althusser's two books in 1965, the classic books, Four Marks and Reading Capital. Why do they have these titles? Here's why. First problem, Marx has all of this writing about philosophy and method and so on when he's young. And then, according to Althusser, 1845, he totally changes his approach. And he produces a new kind of knowledge, which is Marxism. But after that, he barely ever explains his method. He's totally, he's constantly talking about philosophy before that. But after that, he barely ever talks about it. And so in order to understand the materialism of Marx's method, we have to elaborate a philosophy for Marx. We have to do it for him because he didn't do it. And we have to like read how he did it practically, how he practiced a different kind of theory and elaborated on his behalf. And then reading capital is precisely what does that because capital is the mature expression of, you know, uh, his fully realized new method. And we have to, and, and when you read capital, I mean, you're not reading capital, you're reading the making of the English working class. If you were to read capital, you would see Marx constantly reading these other texts. This is actually true of any history. Thompson is reading the archives. You know, we don't have um, an unmediated access to history. This is where, you know, we would disagree. We didn't get to empiricism. Okay, we would disagree. I would disagree with Thompson's common sense empiricism in the sense that, yes, it is true and a profoundly important point that we have no immediate access to historical facts or to the experiences of historical actors that we want to write about. It's mediated through various levels of representation and symbolization. Yeah? And so when we read Thompson, we're reading Thompson reading the archives. Right? And so the question of what it means to read it's not just an academic question. This isn't just a fancy French philosophical question. It's like when you go into the archives and you read these things written by or about these artisanal workers in the 18th, 19th centuries, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? You, you want to say that you're talking about the experience of the working class two centuries ago? What's your access to that experience? It's all coming through reading. So you have to ask the question of what it means to read. That's what reading capital is about. It's saying what's, what, when we read Marx and he's reading classical political economy, how do we read in such a way as to come up with a materialist method? And that's the question, you know, and um, that, that, that honestly is a question which is not posed by Thompson but it's one which is practiced by Thompson because he is reading the archives. And, and I think, what, I, I keep repeating it, but it's not best explained by saying that 
he's tapping into some universal human experience that's always there, but that he's reading material that is already represented, already symbolized, and trying to refashion it into something which can explain this phenomenon that he wants to call class and the making of class. And he has to forge concepts to do it. Okay, that's the, that, that's the distinction with empiricism. Empiricism, in Althusser's understanding, now Thompson is a common sense understanding of empiricism, and he's scandalized once again by Althusser criticizing it because he says, look, you got to do empirical research. You got to look and check on the facts and like figure out what, what actually happened. That's the common sense understanding. But when Althusser talks about empiricism, he's talking about something very specific. He's talking about the idea that you can read, let's say, you can interpret social phenomena, you can go and look at the facts, and you can carve away all of the excess, unimportant phenomena and get at the essence that's hidden in the reality of things. That somewhere out there, there's the core truth. Probably it's the economy. And that if you get, you know, you, you tear away all this extra stuff, the, all the, you know, nonsense, you'll finally get at the economy under there and you'll understand the truth. This is so common today among Marxists. Althusser's idea was that, you know, this is totally contrary to Marx's own method because, you know, the young Marx will constantly criticize abstraction, but then the Marx later on, starting 1857 and so on, he will say, actually, you have to begin with abstraction because the first thing we have is these abstract concepts that are organizing all of our sense experience and all of the data that we're talking about. We, we already have abstract concepts. We don't have, um, uh, we don't have data without those concepts. And so we have to start with these abstractions and do a process. We have to do a labor on them. We have to work with them and we have to work with them to add back the complexity add back all of the determinations that um, will bring us to concrete reality. So we have to go from the abstract to the concrete. Now, empiricism, in a sense, would be going from the concrete to the abstract, which, which would be saying, like, we got all this, we got this complicated reality out there. We're going to get rid of as much as we can and just boil it down to the abstract thing. We'll boil it down to the model will boil it down to what's most important. Althusser argued Marx's method was exactly the opposite. This is what he what this is what Marx argues in the 1857 introduction to the Grundrisse, which is going from the abstract to the concrete. You start with recognizing that you are working with abstractions and you add back the complexity. You don't get rid of the complexity. I have here the uh, the I think most famous quotation from from that introduction, which I'll read to our listeners. Our listeners can hear it. I think this is what you're talking about, Assad. When we consider a given country politico-economically, we begin with its population, its distribution among classes, town, country, the coast, the different branches of production, export and import, 
annual production and consumption, commodity prices, etc. It seems to be correct to begin with the real and concrete, with the real precondition, thus to begin in economics with, for example, the population, which is the foundation and the subject of the entire social act of production. However, in closer examination, this proves false. The population is an abstraction if I leave out, for example, the classes of which it is composed. These classes, in turn, are an empty phrase if I am not familiar with the elements on which they rest, for example, wage, labor, capital, etc. These latter, in turn, presuppose exchange, division of labor, prices, etc. For example, capital is nothing without wage, labor, without value, money, price, etc. Thus, if I were to begin with the population, this would be a chaotic conception of the whole, and I would then, by means of further determination, move analytically towards ever more simple concepts, from the imagined concrete towards ever thinner abstractions, until I had arrived at the simplest determinations. From there, the journey would have to be retraced, until I had finally arrived at the population again, but this time not as a chaotic conception of a whole, but as a rich totality of many determinations and relations. It seems to me in English that Stuart Hall is the, is the theorist who has uh, most prominently and significantly tried to make good on that method. Stuart Hall was um, like, um, first of all, he was in his particular role in English Marxism, like constantly trying to balance between all of these warring tendencies. Um, as editor and so on. And also, I think the most perceptive commentator on these different theoretical debates, he did um, accept too much the interpretation of Althusser as a structuralist Marxist, but this was just an aspect of the, this was, this is not like, it's not a question of linguistic translation, but of conceptual translation that happened from French to English. Um, but nevertheless, he remains, I think, the most insightful commentator on this. And of course, um, an early interlocutor of E.P. Thompson. I think, I would say, the Poverty of Theory was published with a few other essays, some of which you've been discussing, the peculiarities of the English, the um, the uh, open letter to Leszek Kolakowski, which is a truly pathetic, unpleasant text. Um, but also what I think is one of the most wonderful texts by Thompson, which is called Outside the Whale which is about the questions of political commitment um, as a response to Orwell and the interpretation of Auden. And actually, um, Hall had already written about this in 1958, uh, two years before Thompson. Um, it's very interesting. We think of Hall as this uh, kind of 1980s figure of cultural studies, but as early as the late 50s, he was a fundamental part of the English New Left. On that note, I think we should wrap up probably. Um, thanks, Asad, for joining us. I think this was a really enlightening and helpful discussion. And uh, I should say that we will be resuming our reading course um, for next week. We'll be reading chapters six and seven, which are called Exploitation and the Field Laborers. Um, so we can do our best to read between the lines or not as, as we choose, but um, thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Asad, for your time. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N. Or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.